Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And, well, I'm in the studio alone today. So just me, listeners. But the justices earlier this week wrapped up their last oral arguments of the year, including major cases on a $6 billion opioid settlement and a highly anticipated, um, wait, hold on, let me check my notes, uh, tax case? Yes, that court watchers thought could have wide-ranging implications. But today we're going to focus on Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who was the first woman to sit on the high court after being nominated by President Ronald Reagan in 1981. She is truly a person for all seasons, possessing those unique qualities of temperament, fairness, intellectual capacity, and devotion to the public good, which have characterized the 101 brethren who have preceded her. The justice died last week at the age of 93. Joining us to talk about her trailblazing career is Wilkinson Steckloff partner Tamara Matthews-Johnson, who clerked for Justice O'Connor during the 2000 term. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So by the time you joined Justice O'Connor's chambers, she'd been on the bench for almost two decades. What was it like to work with her? It was the honor of a lifetime to clerk for Justice O'Connor in some ways as it would be to clerk for any justice at the Supreme Court, an honor and a privilege. But I want to add that it was also a lot of fun. There was just a lot of hustle and bustle in her chambers. All of the chambers were extremely busy. And we had a lot of work to do that term, as I'm sure uh, many people will remember. But she was also a person who just had a very, very full life, social life. She cared about people and her relationships, and that translated into how she interacted with us. So we had a real opportunity to not just work with her, but to spend time doing all kinds of non-work-related activities and just having a good time. Hmm. Um, After news of her passing, you wrote a piece for us here at Bloomberg Law in which you said that Justice O'Connor showed young female lawyers how to have it all. Uh, What did you mean by that? I meant it from my perspective, my vantage point as a 20-something who was clerking for the justice, someone starting out knowing that you wanted to have a very full career. But at that point in time for me, I was unmarried. I did not have children. Um, Not only was I unmarried, I wasn't sure I would ever be married, to be quite frank. Um, Of course, you know, we we always wonder that. And there was always this sense that to have a successful marriage, partnership, uh, perhaps to be a parent would require making a lot of hard choices. I now know 20 years later, it does require making hard choices. But seeing Justice O'Connor at that point in time in my career made me believe that it was possible to potentially make all of these things happen because she did it uh, so effectively. And that's what I mean when I talk about a robust social life. And uh, we would see Mr. O'Connor, who is just a delightful person in his own right. Um, And it made me believe that that it is possible to have a full career and a full family life. Hmm, Interesting. Well, Tamara, one thing that I've always wondered about, um, did the justice ever talk to you about what it was like to be the first just female justice on the Supreme Court? I mean, like day in and day out, were there certain obstacles or just oddities about, you know, being the first woman there? 
Well, uh, I'll certainly remind you at the time that, of course, I was clerking, there were two women justices because uh, Justice Ginsburg had also joined the court. And I think what Justice O'Connor would consistently instill was the sense that it was important that she'd been a trailblazer and she was aware of that, but she was so, so pleased to have a fellow female justice. And I know later, uh, she definitely, as I recall, had an opportunity to spend time with Justices Sotomayor and Justice Kagan. Uh, I just think that that camaraderie meant a lot to her. Her camaraderie with justices in general meant a lot. They had their regular lunches. They were often very jovial. She would come back chuckling about something that had been said um, and sort of their interactions. And, you know, we kind of fostered that camaraderie. We'd event occasionally have events in our chambers even that would include where justices had come by. And so it was just a, it was that sense of camaraderie. And I do think it meant a lot to her to have a fellow female justice on the court. And she was cognizant of what it was like, I think, to be a woman doing the job that she was doing. So I'm happy to say that as long as I've been alive, there has been at least one woman on the high court. I mean, just barely, but it still counts. Um, but can you give us an idea about how important it was for President Reagan to appoint a woman to the bench? I mean, what was that moment like? If you know, did anybody ever speak to you about that? Do you have an idea about what that was like? Well, I, I was certainly alive when it happened, but I was a child. And so I can't say I remember that moment in particular. But it, I will say, as a Black woman, it meant a lot to know that there was a Black justice on the Supreme Court. It meant a lot to know that there was a woman justice on the Supreme Court. And I do think, and this is something that I think the justice said that was even reflected in some of her rulings, as we know the 2003 uh, Michigan decision on considering race in the context of university and in that instance, law school admissions, that it makes sense that any institution would reflect the body that that institution purports to either represent or to govern, if we're talking about another branch of government, or where you're sitting in judgment. And it certainly matters to people, I think, most people, to feel that our institutions reflect the polity itself. So I think that's the value um, that she consistently espoused, even in her writings, to be clear. So despite being appointed by a Republican, Justice O'Connor became a decisive vote on a number of high-profile issues. I'm thinking abortion, as you mentioned, affirmative action, and even things like enemy combatants and the contested 2000 election. Can you tell us a bit about her role as a swing justice? I think it's been widely reported that the justice did not like the term swing justice. Um, and, and I can't say I recall a specific conversation with her about that. But I will say this. There was a consciousness that litigants would occasionally be only arguing to Justice O'Connor. That was not lost. It was also not lost on some clerks. When you are going to become a clerk, you often talk and speak with former clerks. And I did that to the extent I could with, with former clerks I could find. And I was even told that 
the chambers might find itself being lobbied from time to time. There might be emissaries from other chambers who might come by just to talk about an issue, as you could imagine, right, in, in, in general senses and try to get a feel for what uh, a thought process might be. We were always scrupulous, of course, to never discuss what Justice O'Connor was thinking. But there was certainly an effort. Seriously, it's true. There was an effort, uh, I think, not just... Uh, from litigants, but within the court, this understanding that she sort of sat at the fulcrum. I, in my observation of her, never saw her thinking her of herself as, quote unquote, the swing justice or, quote unquote, casting a deciding vote. I think she saw herself in this, and, and I will say not to try to get into her mental operations, but just as reflected in her work and in her writings, as someone who understood that law means something to people in their daily lives and on the ground. And she was known as an active justice from the bench. I certainly, as any law clerk would, felt really wonderful when we could come up with questions that she would then ask from the bench and they would help us understand the case better. In some cases, maybe shifting her thinking uh, based on answers that were given at oral argument. But I think the idea of swing or being even at the center, not being as conservative at times as people would have liked, um, maybe also not being as quote unquote liberal or progressive as at, at other times, was not a reflection of just resting in the middle, but really a, a, a reflection of trying to think about an issue from multiple points of view. And frankly, it would be wonderful in some ways, I think, if people were more willing to see things from a multitude of positions, even if as a result, it leads that decision maker, policy maker, legislator, to take a position that might not be on one wing or another wing. That's really interesting. So you talked about um, other chambers lobbying you. Tell us all about those secret conversations um, and what what cases turned on those. Uh, just please tell us everything you got. <laughs> oh, I, I I get that question a lot. And I, I get that question a lot in particular because of uh, when I clerked. Mm-hmm. And yes, we just don't that. talk about that. <laughs> I know. I know. I know you would. And I've, I've had the question so, so many times. Um, we don't talk yeah. about it. I don't talk about it. My co-clerks don't talk about it. Um, I know other clerks of the court don't. I think the desire of people to know is very, very legitimate. Uh, the desire of the press to suss out facts is very, very legitimate. I also feel, though, that confidentiality, secrecy, it is so, so important to functions of the government in various places. In my career, I've had a variety of jobs where I had to keep certain information secret because it was grand jury material or because it was top secret or because I owed a duty of confidentiality to my judge or my justice or my client. And it's so critical, even for the things that everyone wants to know about, that you're able to maintain confidences. I mean, it's meaningful in your relationship with the justice, but I actually think it's meaningful in terms of our institutions. Mm. Okay, fine. Um, (laughs) So, you know, you mentioned that Justice O'Connor was really sort of um, aware that law has an effect on people's daily lives. And I sort of wanted to step back and sort of talk about her daily life um, 
um, you know, before she got on the bench. And just wondering if you could give us a little sense of about what her upbringing was like and if that sort of reflected her time, uh, was reflected in her writings from the bench. So she has a wonderful biography uh, that, you know, was published some years ago. And I certainly don't have that sort of comprehensive knowledge. But the way she always talked about her upbringing and what was really reflected about her was that she had come from a very hardworking background. And I identified with that because I felt like I came from a very hardworking background with my parents. Um, my She was, as again, so gracious. My parents met her. They came to visit. And she did this with multiple clerks. And she just frankly could speak to everyone the same way. And so all I say is when I meet someone and I see, you know, how they interact with other people, how they're able to sort of, you know, really connect with people. I think that's what I see as a reflection of her upbringing, because people coming to meet as a Supreme Court justice, you know, you could almost expect someone who is above and, and who you can't really even imagine sort of having a conversation with. And yet she was so funny and very down to earth and uh, and accessible is the way I would think about it. And so while I, I certainly don't have a, a great deal of detail about how she grew up, other than, of course, what we've read and what she would sometimes share anecdotally, what I saw reflected in how she treated people was the sense that she could speak with anyone. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I imagine that hardworking background really came into play when she was uh, attending law school at Stanford Law School because she graduated near the top of her class. But she did not have a pick of law firm jobs when she graduated, right? And tell us a little bit about that and how that was reflected in her work, if if you see it reflected at all. Yes, what I what I think she understood, having lived through it herself was that there are obstacles out there that people are facing, right? And she understood on some level that was personal. And then again, it did reflect in her writings that we can't ignore the fact that there are some of these obstacles that various groups have faced, that we have to acknowledge those. I think also she would immediately say, I can't let that stand in my way. So there is a there is a level of sort of individual self-determination. I don't think it's pull yourself up by your bootstraps per se. I want to be clear about that. I think it's a function of I recognize that had I been a man in her shoes, right, coming out of Stanford Law School, she would have had a law firm job. She did not have a law firm job because of her sex because of, right? Not any other sort of, you know, thing you might want to reflect upon or wonder, maybe it's some other variable. And so with that reality, she charged ahead um, and still made an incredible legal career serving in three branches of Arizona government, as we all know. And then reportedly, of course, again, I wasn't there, just, you know, wowing President Reagan to the point that, you know, he selected her to be the first woman justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. And so that reality plus grit and determination is sort of the way I think of her. And I think of other 
women in my life who are role models, who I think exhibited a lot of the same things with challenges. I think of my mother, I think of my grandmothers. Um, and I've had a series of incredible women bosses actually sort of all the way through my career. It's a, it's a straight, I mean, it's a strange thing given to look back and think that, but that's what's true for me. So Justice O'Connor obviously is an incredible historic figure. And for me, she is an incredible historic figure in the midst of all these wonderful women bosses I've had throughout my career. So you mentioned that Justice O'Connor was involved um, in Arizona politics, and she's actually the last justice to have any prior elected political experience before she came to the court. We've been talking about sort of how her experience was reflected in her time on the bench. Did you see that come into play as well? That's an interesting point. I, I, I don't know that I saw her status as an elected official per se, but certainly the idea of, I would say, the, the counter to what is sometimes described as the ivory tower of some appellate profiles. And that's not to say there are wonderful judges and justices from all backgrounds, but there's the contrast often, I think, less between were you a legislator, but was your career the kind of career where you were in touch with a lot of different kinds of people on a regular basis? And I, I, I do think having a background where you're in touch, interacting with, serving, working with people of a variety of backgrounds is a valuable foundation. I wouldn't say it's necessary, right? We know that there are obviously there are many, many gifted jurists from various backgrounds. But I think less of her as a legislator and more of her as someone who, through her all of her service, came in contact with all different kinds of people on a regular basis and had to problem solve on a regular basis. Well, that actually leads me um, quite nicely into uh, my next set of questions. Uh, you know, unlike many other retirements that we've seen since Justice O'Connor, she was incredibly active for much of her retirement. Uh, here she is introducing her online teaching tool, iCivics. You may be surprised that I'm promoting civics teaching and learning using online media. I'm not an expert in it. But these are the new tools of civic engagement for the digital generation, the young people. And even a retired cowgirl like me knows that we need to use these tools to educate. Um, Tamara, wondering, why do you think Justice O'Connor stayed so active in public service for so many years after retiring? I mean, she really did champion, you know, judicial independence and then, of course, civic education, which even the chief justice mentioned um, in sort of honoring her after news of her passing. You know, why do you think she was so active. I could not have imagined Justice O'Connor anything but active. <laughs> okay, this is just a function of, of every day when I was one of her clerks and the bustle of her physical, physical activity and doing incredible work reviewing drafts of opinions and bench memos and calling us in and having these invigorating discussions. And then having a lunch with, you know, someone who's come in to visit who just wanted to sit and meet her. She had boundless energy from my perspective as a 20-something, which is what I was at the time that I was clerking. And so her level of vigor 
true vigor, I would have been shocked if she'd done anything other than stay involved. And iCivics is such a perfect vehicle creation to have come from Justice O'Connor, understanding her belief in the value of our institutions, the value of democracy, just how important it is for children, for our youth to understand civic education. And certainly we can talk about history and we can talk about a lot of other things that feed into that. But there's something about the compact itself, understanding what America is about, why it's so valuable that we have this robust, diverse set of folks who are all here together, committed to a set of ideals that also allows all of us to have different opinions and different things we want to do. It's it's sort of this sense of diversity yet coming together, right? I mean, it's hokey to go back to e pluribus unum, but that is the truth, right? And so I think that's something that she seriously believed in. I, I think she was a true patriot uh, in the sense of a patriot to the country and a believer in the country. Hmm. So my last question is uh, is a big one. Um, Justice O'Connor was um, replaced by Justice Samuel Alito, who has uh, not been, uh, to use the nasty word, a swing justice on most issues. He's been uh, a pretty conservative in his time on the bench and and conservative in a lot of cases that Justice O'Connor was the deciding vote, maybe, you know, pointing to a more liberal outcome. And so I'm just wondering, what is her legacy going to be like when we look back uh, on her lifetime, you know, decades from now? What do you think people are going to remember about her? So you ask a very important question. I think the legacy of Justice O'Connor will begin with she was the first woman justice of the United States Supreme Court. But I think it goes on to really reflect the depth and the breadth of her contribution to our country. Not just that she was the first justice to be nominated and confirmed and, and, and serve, but how she served and how she continued to serve our country even after she departed the court through an incredible organization that's designed to educate young people. And I think people will also look back on many of her opinions, which at any given time in the past, people may have criticized for being too much in the middle and actually see them as somewhat prescient of what is truly required to adjudicate difficult decisions, keep the country together and moving forward. And I wish we had a little more of that right now. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us and share your experience with Justice O'Connor. I worked in the Arizona State Senate uh, many, 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 many years ago. And just... uh, just knowing about um, what I knew of her time there, it was she was an incredible woman just for, you know, her time there. And so just to think of all the things that she's done since then was it's quite amazing. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. Well, that was a great look into a more personal side of Justice O'Connor. Did want to give a brief rundown of one of the cases that the justices heard this week, Harrington versus Purdue Pharma. 
This was that bankruptcy case that asks whether a $6 billion opioid settlement properly shields the Sackler family members who own the company from future legal claims related to the company's introduction of OxyContin. Now, after oral arguments, it isn't really clear where the court is ultimately going to land on this case. And that's because the justices seemed really split, though not along ideological lines. Some of the justices were concerned that a ruling invalidating the settlement would upend decades of bankruptcy practice that has ended mass litigation over, for example, um, sex abuse claims against Catholic dioceses, the Boy Scouts of America, and USA Gymnastics. But on the flip side, other justices were concerned that the deal would release the Sackler family from future claims, even though they themselves are not filing for bankruptcy. Here's Justice Kagan with that concern. Mr. Garr, as I suggested to Mr. Gannon, I thought that one of the government's uh, stronger arguments is this idea that there's a fundamental bargain in bankruptcy law, which is you get a discharge when you put all your assets on the table to be divided up among your creditors. And I think everybody thinks that the Sacklers didn't come anywhere close to doing that. And the question is, Why should they get the discharge that usually goes to a bankrupt person once they've put all their assets on the table without having put all their assets on the table? But that's going to do it. I will save you all from giving even a brief overview of the tax case. The justices will be off for the rest of the year, but we at Cases and Controversies will not be. We'll be back with a recap of some of those cases from the December sitting and perhaps some new grants that the court will add to its docket. Until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Hello, podcast listeners. If you don't already know On the Merits, our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news, it's a show that features the very best of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government, newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C. When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. Our show is by and about legal policy nerds, and we say that lovingly. It's a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know, but you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show on the merits and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find our archive of shows at news.bloomberglaw.com podcasts.